Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks for joining us here for episode 525 with Christine Clapp. Christine has got a boatload of wisdom for how you can have greater confidence, greater presence as you're engaging in public speaking. So you'll learn one, the most common mistake in presentation preparation, two, the five S's of confident speakers, and three, how to eliminate filler words. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, it's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F525. Now, here's Christine's story. Christine Clapp is the author of Presenting at Work, a guide to public speaking in professional contexts, and is the president of Spoken with Authority, a Washington, D.C.-based presentation skills consultancy that includes a team of six expert coaches. Through training programs and coaching engagements, Christine and her team help professionals at law firms, corporations, associations, and nonprofit organizations build the confidence to connect and the capacity to lead. Christine holds two degrees in communication, a bachelor's degree from Willamette University, and a master's degree from the University of Maryland College Park. She also taught public speaking to undergraduate and graduate students at the George Washington University for 13 years. Thanks to Christine for spending some time with us, and thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no, no. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours, and small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Now, here's Christine. Christine, thanks for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Well, I was intrigued to learn that your family's on a mission to visit all 60 national parks, and you've got almost a third of them down already. So what's the story here, and, and, and which one's the best? As a family, we started going to a few national parks, and then we read about someone who had made it to every single national park, we thought that's a really great goal because getting to them requires that you go to different parts of the U.S. And we thought that that was a laudable way to see the country and expose our kids to some interesting and beautiful sites and different people because we're based here in Washington, D.C. And there's a lot more to the U.S. than Washington, D.C. And so far, I have to say my favorite park would be it's tough because i like different parks for different reasons this last summer we went to isle royal national park which is technically in michigan but it's very close to canada and lake superior and it was great because there's so few people there when you you have to take a boat or seaplane to get there and when our seaplane landed we got a personal tour and briefing by the park ranger and it was very different than going to Yellowstone or a very 
populated glacier where there's mile long lines to get into the parks in the summer. So I have to say that was great. And then another one, we went to Teddy Roosevelt National Park in North Dakota a few summers ago, and it's really beautiful, is definitely off the beaten path. And it's, I think not many people get there, but it's, it's worth seeing. It's got some incredible hikes and wild horses and longhorn steer and bison. And it was, it was great. Oh, that's really cool. That's really cool. I've got a a posse that uh, they've sort of found their favorite uh, spot and and they've returned there every other year for camping. It is in the Clearwater National Forests in Idaho. And wow, it is so good. Nice. That's fantastic. Yeah, I'm actually from Washington State. So this summer, we're going to try to go to Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and maybe hop down to in Oregon, blanking on the the big uh, crater lake. And so maybe we'll get a chance to swing through Idaho and go to that national forest, you said? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's uh, it's a good spot. We mostly just sit yeah. around, <laughs> but it's in beauty. <laughs> it sounds lovely. That's cool. Well, so let's talk about when you are not isolated from humanity and instead are presenting you wrote a book, Presenting at Work, and I was intrigued by the subtitle, A Guide to Public Speaking in Professional Contexts. And I want to get your take. How do you think about how speaking at work differs from other kinds of public speaking? That's a great question. I think the differentiator here is not between work and home, but it's differentiating a among the type of communication you do at work, or it's a lack of differentiating. Many times when we work with professionals, they were introduced to them and they say, oh, it's really nice that you do public speaking training and coaching, but I'm not a public speaker. But this is an individual who has phone calls every day, who leads meetings, who briefs clients, who gets asked by their director or partner about a project that they're working on. They might give a training program or a webinar. They might speak at a professional association. And perhaps they give a toast at their company party, yet they don't think that they're a quote-unquote public speaker. And our argument is that every conversation you have at a networking event or at the water cooler or meeting or phone call or someone popping their head in the office... Those are public speaking situations at work, and there are ways that you can improve your performance in all of them. We also believe that if you aren't working on improving your performance in those day-to-day conversations and meetings and briefings, it's really hard to have the experience and to do well when you have those high-pressure, high-stakes, once-a-year or once-in-a-career presentations that you have an opportunity to give. Yeah, that makes total sense. And, and you're right. When you think of public speaking, that can create a a picture of, oh, I am on stage and there is a giant crowd and, you know, away we go. Dramatic TED Talk, you know, keynote is, is unfolding. Uh, but yeah, it's certainly much broader than that in terms of perhaps more day-to-day encounters. So, well, I'd love to get your, your take, maybe if you could orient us to uh, perhaps a story. Have you seen a, a client have a, a dramatic transformation and how did that go? Yeah. Well, I would offer up that I myself was someone who was a terrible public speaker. So anyone who's out there feeling like, oh, this woman, Christine, she's has always been a great speaker and I can't take her advice because she's naturally gifted and that's just not something that I'm good at. I want to let all of you know that I too struggled as a public speaker. It was something I was very uncomfortable with. In fact, when my dad wrote a holiday letter 
when I was in second or third grade, he had a line in it that I was doing well in school and thriving, but a book report was a skill that I had yet to master. That prospect of doing a felt board presentation on a book I read as an eight-year-old was overwhelming to me. And that's something that dogged me in elementary school, middle school, and high school. And when I got to college, I was interested in the major of rhetoric. I went to a small school in Salem, Oregon, and it's only one of three universities at the time that had an undergraduate degree in the study of persuasion, which is rhetoric. And I was really interested in it, but I almost changed my major when I found out that you had to have oral communication proficiency, which meant that you had to do the debate team or do public speaking as a course for a semester. And that experience was something that being forced to do, I decided to do debate because I thought it would be less painful than doing a semester public speaking class. And I went to two debate tournaments my second semester of freshman year, and I lost all 12 of my first 12 debates. I didn't even win one. There, no one even slept in and I didn't win by <laughs> default. And it was humbling and it was frustrating and it was eye-opening because I knew it would always hamper my leadership potential no matter what career path I went down. So even after losing all 12 debates, I decided to come back my sophomore year and continue debating. And I did. And I worked very hard. And my coach, I think, was somewhat surprised and impressed that I came back for more. I had a great partner. I had great coaches. We had state-of-the-art VHS recording technology <laughs> in our debate lab. And we could video record and review our debates. And it was a great learning experience. By the end of the year, my partner and I had qualified to go to nationals. And we even advanced to the elimination rounds of the tournament. So that experience and continuing to debate regionally, nationally, and internationally throughout the rest of college and going from being terrified and unsuccessful to having fun as a public speaker and a moderate level of success, it really did change my life. And it's something that I knew I wanted to do for other people for the rest of my life. And that's the best thing that we get to do is we get to work with individuals. Most of the people we do work with are really bright subject matter experts. They're smart, they're driven, they're capable, they have great things to share. They've just never been taught how to share it in a public speaking setting, whether that's a small group or a large group, or even a one-on-one conversation with a client or a colleague. And that's where we come in. And it's really fulfilling to see them come into their own and become more confident and capable as speakers and leaders. Well, that is really cool. So, well, let's hear. So how's that done? If you find yourself terrified or at least just quite nervous when it comes to thinking about a presentation coming up, how do you, I guess, in that moment and then maybe, you know, prior to that moment, do the things you need to do so that it could become an enjoyable experience? Well, we recommend that people take a three-pronged approach to becoming a better public speaker and presenter. And that's the three prongs are the long-term strategy, the midterm strategy, and the short-term strategy. If you think about the long-term strategy, you need to gain experience as a speaker. That might mean volunteering for more roles at your organization. And if you're not finding in your current job that you have those opportunities yet, we encourage you to find opportunities through volunteer work that you may do. Maybe you're involved in a religious institution where you can do public speaking. But another great place for anyone across the U.S. or around the globe is Toastmasters International. Toastmasters is a public speaking organization. It's a nonprofit, and it's a great place to find an audience if you want to get better as a public speaker. 
So in the long term, we need you to get out there and do it because you're not going to get better by thinking about it or reading about it or watching videos about it. You have to go out there and do it. In the midterm, one of the big failures we see for most speakers is they don't spend enough time working on their presentation. We talked earlier about those TED-style talks when you're on a stage with a microphone, something like TED, a conference presentation, or a big product launch, that type of thing that a thought leader might do. That is going to take two to six months to prepare. For many professionals, when they're doing an important briefing, doing a job pitch, if they're going to a new position or becoming partner or director at their firm, that's something that'll take one to two months. And for the more day-to-day type communication, speaking up in a meeting, doing a briefing on your monthly report, speaking to the board of directors at your organization, those types of presentations, we recommend that you'd have at least one to two weeks to get ready for, depending on how long it is, perhaps even longer. So in the midterm, you have to plan enough time to work on your presentation. We also recommend doing 60-40. And my good friend, Susan Trivers, recommended this. And I would recommend uh, everyone follow the 60-40 rule, which is you want to spend 60% of your time practicing your presentation and only 40% of time on putting together the content. Most people spend 90% of time putting down, doing research, writing things out, doing slides, and they spend very little time saying it out loud. And that's why most people are really nervous and why most presentations fall flat. You need to put your content together. And as you rehearse it, you will improve the content but you also improve your familiarity and your dynamism as a speaker. So that's the midterm. And then for the short-term approach, we recommend that everyone has a pre-speaking routine. Every person's will be different, but it's to think through, how many hours of sleep do I need the night before my presentation? How do I stay hydrated? What do I eat to feel my best? What kind of exercise do I do in the morning of my presentation? Or do I do yoga or practice meditation or mindfulness practices? When do I do my last run-through? of my presentation? Do I need to talk to my mom or dad or my best friend on the phone to pump me up? Or do I have a passage of scripture or a quotation that makes me feel great or a playlist on my music? Everyone needs to find out how they can be at their mental and physical best in the day or two before a presentation. Because if you're not feeling well, you're not going to present well, no matter how much time you spend in the long term or in the midterm. Oh boy, there's so much good stuff there. So, so thank you for for bringing it. So that sixty forty rule, that's interesting. I do not do that, <laughs> and I'm a professional speaker, and that I've paid been paid to keynote dozens of times. I guess I'm really intrigued by that because, in a way, I, I think it's awesome in terms of it's like, yeah, you're right. The ninety ten ratio people are doing right now with content to practicing is not serving them well. I, I think particularly if you're feeling um, nerves. So, is that sixty forty? Do you recommend that for uh, nervous people or, or people doing a a first speech or a speech they've done before, or I guess what contexts do you think, uh, and maybe they're just hyper fixating whenever there's a number, that's a weakness of mine. Uh, <laughs> in what context do you think the 60-40 rule is perfect and where might you want to edge those numbers in, in one or the other direction? Yeah, we recommend the 60-40 rule for people who are newer to public speaking and people who are more seasoned speakers but are speaking on a topic that they are that is fresh. So maybe those are the numbers this month are fresh or this new research is fresh. So the reason why 6040 is really helpful is that your brain will always go to what do I say 
before it can have bandwidth of how do I say it dynamically. And until you have that repetitive practice, and for most of our speakers, it's six rehearsals out loud, six sticks. And when people get to the six rehearsal, things stick. It gets very easy for them to remember. And the first few rehearsals for most people, you get a little bit more awkward and stiff and you have a hard time getting things off your tongue. But for whatever reason, and I don't, I've never found any research to explain why, but for most speakers, six times is when you achieve fluidity with the material and you can be in the moment. Sometimes people say to us, if I rehearse, I don't feel present. I'm, I'm better and I'm more myself if I'm winging it. But the fact is, is that if you practice enough, you get over that hump of becoming awkward and a slave to your notes and you really understand the material and you barely have to glance at your notes or your slides and you can be in the moment and you can be funny and you can respond to your audience and you can do all the things that great speakers do. You talked about being a keynote speaker. The fact is, is that if you talk about the same topics regularly, you've already done those six rehearsals. You've probably done it hundreds, (laughs) if not thousands of times. So as you do get like you and me, when we do similar trainings and programs, yeah, we tailor them, but we do have those core modules that will follow through. And we've done them so many times. We can be present in the moment when it's someone who is newer to speaking or has new a new set of material, you have to do those six rehearsals until you get comfortable. And I would argue that stand-up comics and trainers like you and me, most of us, we will beta test our new products, our new presentations, our new jokes on audiences before we put them out for prime time. And it's partly because of that you need to get through it six times because you don't know what people are going to laugh at or how they're going to react or what stories are going to fall flat until you do those six rehearsals. Yeah, that's um, very well said. And I, I really am resonating there in, in terms of that hump. That, that makes total sense in terms of folks saying, hey, I, I feel unnatural. It's like, well, yeah, you're, you're in that kind of weird in-between zone. You know, you're, you're going to feel unnatural. But if you get the other side of that, then you're going to feel even more natural you know, than you would had you done zero because you're able. That's what I find is when, when I'm liberated from having to remember my content, I just like the whole universe opens up. It's almost like the Matrix, you know, it, it's like yeah, I can and- look at you. I can listen. I can read the room as opposed to, okay, what what was the next thing I was going to say? You know, it changes everything. Exactly. And one of the things we also recommend that speakers do is to avoid, whenever possible, scripting their presentations word for word, because that makes people get tied up into specific wording and they feel like they have to memorize it word for word, which takes way more than six rehearsals to do. Well, that's what trained actors do. And it takes much more than six practices. That's why we recommend using an outline that's detailed, that's well-researched, but that you rehearse it so you can look at the words and phrases on the sheet and you can talk about the data and tell the stories in a natural and conversational way. And every time you say it, it's going to be a little bit different. If you have to have a printed out speech at the very end of your presentation to give to reporters or for the record, this is not a good way to do it. But few of us are under those types of constraints in our professional lives. Most of us just need to be confident and accurate. And having that outline and rehearsing it is a really great way to get to that being present and conversational and also being able to react to the audience in real time. 
Yeah, I think that's that's dead on. I think there's something to be said for perhaps memorizing the killer line or two. Yes. I was just talking to an audio engineer today, and he said, it's not about the wand, it's about the wizards. Like, oh, that's so good. Tweet that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But for so mostly kind of extemporaneous, you got your outline, and then you you got your couple uh, winner lines uh, pre-memorized, perhaps. I absolutely agree. We have a method to outline presentations. We call it the sandwich structure methodology. And we recommend if you, it's on our website, spokenwithauthority.com. We have under resources, our speech outline tool. It's free. Anyone can check it out and put in your content and kick out a PDF or print it off on a piece of paper. And we do have a space at the top of the paper and the bottom of the paper. We encourage you to try to keep your ideas on one page so that you're not scripting and that you're thinking in terms of your arc of the story of the presentation and how all the pieces fit together. But we do have space on that piece of paper to write your opening line or two and your closing line or two. And I don't disagree with you on hitting other key phrases or lines in a memorized way. But the beginning and end are really important. And it's where a lot of speakers fall flat. The introduction is when people decide if they're going to listen to you or not. It also happens to be the one minute when people are the most nervous. Most people get into more manageable level of nervousness after the first 30 to 60 seconds of a presentation. So we encourage you to write it out, make it really good, really catchy, and memorize word for word so that you can be on complete autopilot when you're looking out into the room at the conference table or on the webinar or on the stage and looking into the audience. You can deliver it really well. And then if you completely freeze and have that moment where your mind goes blank, you can just read it off a sheet of paper and the content is still there. And then you can get into that more extemporaneous conversational delivery in the body of the speech. And then we have at the end places to write that last line or two, you're close. In business, we oftentimes have to ask for business or ask for the next steps or where are we going from here? If you don't think about how to do that, you're going to miss out on really crucial opportunities to advance whatever project you're working on, but also your career. Perfect. Thank you. Let's talk a little bit about some of those those pre-speaking rituals. You, You gave a nice little line up there. Could you share, what are those that you have found come up the most often for people or you've seen have had the most dramatic calming effects? The most helpful thing to do, in my opinion, for the broadest number of speakers, right? Everyone's unique. But over 11 years of doing this work, one of the things that seems to have a really great effect on people who are presenting to help calm them down and to prepare them to present is to do some variation of warming up their body and their voice. And there's a lot of different ways to do this. You may have learned something in theater that works for you or debate or in some other situation, but your body and your voice have to be warm in order to do your best. We think about public speaking as being a really physically exhausting and difficult thing to do. It's hard to speak loudly. It's hard to have big open gestures. It's hard to be enthusiastic and to avoid saying ums and ahs and to make eye contact. It's hard to do that for five minutes or two hours, however short or long your presentation is. So it's just like running a marathon or a 10K. You don't want to walk up to the start line completely cold. So some of the things we recommend you do is do some exercise in the morning, whatever that is for you that makes you feel your best so that you're 
body is physically warmed up. You can also do some stretches. It helps to really work on the shoulders, neck, and jaw because that's where people have the most tension as speakers. When we get nervous, our shoulders go up. It causes our larynx to come up in our throat. Our voice gets high. It gets tense. It's hard to project. It gets higher and softer and faster. And by relaxing the shoulders, it allows you to get to the deeper part of your voice, slow down your rate of speaking, to breathe more comfortably. So working on the breath, the body, and then the voice. So working on vocal warm-ups. And if you've ever watched Anchorman, you know some of them. Red leather, yellow leather. I was just thinking of that. It was the Bishop Wall butless chaps to the bomb. They're, they're great. We have our own, but whatever tongue twisters you know, uh, we have some in our book. Red leather, yellow leather. We encourage you to repeat them four or five times. You want to speak lowly, loudly, slowly, and also clearly where you're articulating and really moving your mouth and lips and hitting every sound stretching out your vowels. So when you do your tongue twisters to do that, and that can help counteract that tendency to have the shoulders up, the voice high, and the rate fast when you first start. If you start a presentation in that manner, it's very hard to reverse it. So you have to start shoulders down, voice at a nice part of its range, and slow and crisp. And that's much easier to maintain throughout. Thank you. Well, you, you mentioned five secrets of to speaking with confidence, and each of them starts with an S, the stance, sound, smile, silence, sight. I thought we I must hear a, a little bit about each of these. Yeah, absolutely. Those are the five S's, and this is relevant whether you're your first day in your job or you're going to retire tomorrow. These are important in every interaction in a workplace situation. Your stance is your body language, and we recommend that you try to have your body open. So if you're sitting down, to try to avoid crossing your arms at your chest, which can come across as closed. And if you're doing a formal presentation, coming around the lectern rather than standing behind it so you have more physical presence. Or perhaps it means just when it's your turn in the meeting, perhaps try standing up rather than sitting down. So just having physical presence is about your stance. Sound is about your vocal presence. So we talked a a bit about that just now about being low, loud, slow, and clear. There's a piece called How the Voice Persuades, and it talks about how being louder makes you more persuasive. And this is something that Aristotle and the ancient Greeks were telling us back in the 5th century BCE. But now we have empirical evidence (laughs) from a quantitative survey that supports their recommendations. So we want you to have that loud, resonant voice so people can hear you and so that you are perceived as being more confident, persuasive. That resonates in terms of, uh, resonates, so meta, in terms of, you know, if you're kind of really soft. Was there, there was a Saturday Night Live, I think it was the Shy Ronnie with Andy Sandberg. It is kind of, he's supposed to be like a hip hop guy, but he's really just barely getting the words out there. You know, so it's like like Justin Timberlake. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So, so it's like a joke, like, ah, you know, like that's not going to work, you know, in that stage environment. And, and it's also, you're, you're saying, uh, we've got the wisdom from the ancient rhetoricians as well as uh, new science on this. So I'm hearing that we many of us could afford to be louder than we're being right now. Yes. How loud is too loud and how do we assess that? In all of the speakers who I've worked with, 99.9% of them are not too loud. We have a distorted perception of how loud we are. 
we also have a perception of how enthusiastic we are. We think we're so much more loud and enthusiastic than our audiences perceive us to be. And one other thing about volume to think about is in the workplace or in the society at large, about one in 10 individuals over 18 has hearing loss. When you get over 55, that goes up to a much higher rate of individuals. So you might have, you know, three in 10 individuals who have hearing loss. And when you get to folks who are in their 60s and 70s, so some of the leaders of our organization, people are working longer and they're active and they're participating in the workplace. The number of people who experience hearing loss is really significant. I mean, I'm happy to share some numbers that we have with y'all, but it's, it's a matter of people being able to be included in your conversations. And if you're ever given a microphone to present at a event, always take the microphone. You may not know why yes. you're given a microphone. Someone may have hearing loss or it may be something that they absolutely have to have to participate. So when you say, oh, I'm fine, I can speak loudly. It's like you saying we shouldn't have a ramp out front for people in a wheelchair. Like You can't see people who are hearing impaired. So you should always speak loudly and always take the microphone. So there's body language, there's vocal presence. The last three are smile, silence, and sight of the five elements of your executive presence or your professional presence. Smile is your enthusiasm. And we don't recommend that you smile when you're delivering bad news, but we do recommend that you speak with enthusiasm and passion whenever you're communicating and that you show appropriate facial expressions to whatever you're communicating. You always want the verbal and nonverbal to match. So that because when the verbal and nonverbal conflict, people get confused about what your message actually is. But you want to make sure that you are showing energy, passion, enthusiasm whenever you're speaking and smiles are shorthand for that concept. Silence is trying to avoid filler words. Um, ah, uh, like, you know, so, kind of, sort of, okay, right, and between every sentence. These are words and phrases that make us look less polished and concise. They also can be distracting when we use a high degree of them. 10, 12 per minute gets to that point where people are conscious about it and they start to count them. And then lastly is your sight or eye contact. One of the reasons why we encourage people to avoid scripting is we don't want you to read. Being able to look at people is so important to build rapport, whether it's with a colleague or client. And you have to get those eyes out of your notes. So having words and phrases that you've rehearsed provides the setting. And then when you look up, you should hold your gaze. And this is for the US or Western Europe. There are cultural distinctions with eye contact, but a three-second eye contact, one Mississippi, two Mississippi, three Mississippi, before blinking or looking away is absolutely appropriate in a US or Western European uh, North American context in a business setting, in a conversation, or even personal setting. And most people they might hold their eye contact one to two seconds. So having that long eye contact can help establish your level of confidence and rapport with your listener. Well, that's a nice lineup there. And, and so I'd love to get your take when it comes to those vocal pauses. And it's so funny. I find that mine evolve over time <laughs> in terms of, I think I've eliminated a fair number of us, ums, likes, you knows. And then I discovered from my coaching work, I, I tried to seem less 
I guess, in your face or confrontational. And so I, I kept, I found myself saying the phrase, I would say, and then I, I caught myself saying that a lot when I was a guest on an interview. And I thought that makes me seem less authoritative and confident about that response. Like, this is just my opinion, as opposed to some empirical, you know, fact, data-driven research. I just said, you know, <laughs> now you got me hyper aware. Well, so how do you recommend folks work on purging those vocal pauses from their speaking? Yeah, it is really important. And I'm glad you brought up that notion of qualifying what you're saying, because it is important to avoid and understand that it can undermine your credibility. It's also something that we see more commonly among women than men. Some of those patterns, they come up in oral communication, but also written in email communication, especially when people say, I think we should do this instead of we should do this. And also, I just wanted to see if you could, instead of saying, can you please, or please do this. Mm-hmm. And it's, I'm glad that you mentioned it because I do think it's important, especially for junior and mid-level professionals to be aware of those kinds of constructions that might limit their leadership potential or their perceived level of confidence. But the way that we recommend that people avoid filler words is that they put their lips together and pause. One of the reasons why people use filler words is because they're uncomfortable with silence, which is, again, something that's culturally situated. And it's not that way in every culture, but in the United States and Western Europe, there generally is a distaste for silence when you have the floor, whether it's in a phone call or negotiation or a presentation. You have to have silence though. It's really important. It allows you to breathe. It allows you to avoid those filler words that can be distracting, annoying, or undermine your credibility. And also provides people a moment to catch up with your train of thought. If you are speaking to an international audience and there's a translator, those pauses are really important so that a translator can catch up or an interpreter if you're speaking to individuals who are hard of hearing. So those pauses are really, really important. Putting your lips together is something that feels awkward. It doesn't look awkward to people who are listening to you in a way that we teach our clients to get in the habit of putting their lips together where there's a comma where there's a period or where they don't know what to say next, whether it's they lost their train of thought in a presentation or they're asked a question off the cuff and they need to think of a good response, is we do the hand clap toe tap technique. Mm -hmm. And this is something you could do when you're practicing to give an update in a meeting or to give a speech. We want you to run through a couple times on your own so you get more fluid with the material. Then you can do a hand clap every time you get to a period or a comma. And every time your hands clap, your lips go together. And that's when you're practicing, gets you into the habit. And then from a hand clap, you go to a toe tap. So you have an audible sound of your toe hitting the floor when your lips are together. And then when you're in the meeting or standing up giving your presentation, you go from the hand clap to the toe tap to just scrunching your toes in your shoes and grabbing the floor. And it allows you to remind yourself to do something when your lips are closed, to have those pauses, but no one can perceive it. Unless, of course, you're wearing flip-flops at work, but that's another <laughs> that's another situation to discuss for a later date. But it's, it's the idea of taking one habit and giving yourself a less problematic habit, which is the same strategy that people use to stop smoking. So you might go from smoking to the Nicorette patch, to the Nicorette gum, to regular gum, and 
you have gone from one habit to the other. And that's the same thing as the hand clap to the toe tap to the scrunching your toes when your lips are closed. And it's a process. Just know that when you're tired, you're going to use more junk words. The fewer rehearsals you've had, the more junk words you'll use. If you've had a drink at the company party, you'll use more junk words in your toast than if you <laughs> gave a toast thing. before. Yeah, that's why we have the one glass of champagne rule. You never want to take a microphone after one glass. <laughs> well, well wait, there's, there's so much rich stuff here, Christine. Tell me, anything else you really want to make sure to mention for professionals before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things? Yeah, I would just recommend that no matter what space you're in, no matter how technical your work is, remember that being a leader in your organization or your industry will require presentations, whether it's to ask for money to do your research or whether it's to pitch clients or new business or whether it's to garner votes to be in a position that you are on the ballot for. It's not something that anyone in a leadership role can escape. And I would also argue that why would you want to escape public speaking in the sense that if you have great ideas, public speaking is, in my opinion, the pen and the microphone. Those are the two most powerful ways of sharing those ideas. And I think as we move to more and more video and people consume information in shorter and shorter spurts of time and we have better internet and bandwidth, I think we're going to see more and more of the spoken word and written word as the way that people learn. So don't shy away from public speaking. You will need it for your leadership journey. All right. Well, Christine, let's now hear about some of your favorite things. How about a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? Do or do not, there is no try. (laughs) I think it's a great quotation because you could practice and put things on the back burner forever. But when you're 85% ready to give a presentation, go do it. It's never going to be perfect. There's never a perfect speech. There's always three speeches. There's a speech that you plan. There's a speech you give. And there's a speech you wish you would have given. And they're never the same. So just go out there, do the best you can and embrace it in, in its imperfection. Okay. And could you share a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? Yeah. Well, I mentioned earlier that the ancient Greeks had this in the 5th century before the Common Era. If you aren't familiar with Aristotle, his treatise on rhetoric is the foundation of modern-day persuasion. It is a uh, not a empirical research document. It is in the humanities, but it's the root of the principles that we do our empirical research on in persuasion and communication today, much of it. So I would have people learn about ethos, pathos, and logos, and artistic proofs and inartistic proofs, and get a good grounding in Aristotle. And from there, start looking at some of the present day empirical research on the areas that you're interested in. Mm -hmm. Okay. And how about a favorite book? I guess rhetoric's one of them. Yeah, rhetoric is one of them. Yeah, it's it's not a super easy read, (laughs) but definitely worth checking out the concepts. People think that it was an unfinished work of Aristotle's, which makes it a little bit harder to read than some of his other work. But if you can get a, a concise summary of the points in it. That's very useful. Uh, Other books that are more recent, other than ancient Greek treatises, I would recommend a couple. So a few of my favorite books are Resonate by Nancy Duarte. 
We just had her on the show recently. Did you really? Oh, that's so wonderful. Yeah, she's great. So listen to her uh, podcast episode and also read her book, Resonate. She also has a book called Slideology. That's great. Uh, Another one that I would recommend for folks who struggle with vocal quality, there's a book called Full Voice by Barbara McAfee. Another two that are in the same genre, but are both worth reading. There's Talk Like Ted by Carmine Gallo. And he oh, we had him too. <laughs> oh, he's great. Yeah. And his perspective is you need to identify ways that you can draw from a Ted style of speaking and bring it to the workplace because everyone in your audience at work has been watching Ted talks at home and on their coffee break and they see them at conferences and learning events. So if you're not borrowing the trappings for your report to the board or for your briefing or your educational program, they're going to see a disconnect between you and leadership. Mm-hmm. And then the other one is Chris Anderson, the TED director. His book is called TED Talks, which is also another great book on the TED style. But it's more focused on speakers who are looking to do a TED style talk, which is something that's becoming more and more common at conferences. So many of the speakers who we are working on TED Talks now, they're subject matter experts who are at their association or their industry conference and they're doing a 20-minute TED-style presentation. So a lot of people who are listening might be thinking, oh, I'm never going to give a TED Talk. But actually, you might because it's a format that's becoming more and more popular and used in more and more settings. Oh, thank you. And how about a favorite tool, something you used to be awesome at your job? Our favorite tool is our outline tool, the sandwich structure outline. I think it's a really great plug-and-play methodology that anyone at any point in their career can use to make their presentation more cohesive, more powerful, more well-structured, and to support the dynamic style of delivery that will keep your audience engaged. And I also want to get your take when it comes to favorites. Is there a habit that you maintain that helps you be more effective? I am a runner. I've been running since, so about 15 years now. I started when I was 25. I ran. I used to work on Capitol Hill. And some of my office mates said, hey, why don't you run on our office's Cherry Blossom 10-miler team? And I signed up and I never thought I could do a 10-miler. And I started training in January where I'd run one minute, walk one minute. And by the time April came around, I ran this 10-mile race. And Then I continued running with these same friends. And they said, well, if you could run 10 miles, you can run 26.2. And I thought, oh, whatever. So I kept running with them. And sure enough, I got to the 18-mile run. I thought, oh, I don't want to sign up for Marine Corps. And they said, "Uh, you did 95% of the training. We have one more long run. Do it. So I did. So I have been a long-distance runner. I've run 10 marathons. I don't run the long distances anymore because I have an 8-year-old and 11-year-old. So I spend my Saturdays at flag football and soccer. And that's what I choose to do at that time. But I still do run three or four times a week for a couple miles, three, four or five. And I think it's just a great way to decompress, to deal with uh, if you have a big presentation. To For me, it helps me get rid of that nervous energy, helps ground me, and I think helps keep me healthy and sane. And for me, that's, I think, one of the reasons why it seems weird. Running shouldn't help you do more, but I feel like it helps ground me so that I am able to produce more and do more as a professional. Lovely. So whatever that outlet is for you, find it. 
And is there a particular nugget you share that really seems to connect and resonate with your your listeners, your clients? They repeat it back to you often. I think one of the secrets of public speaking that our clients have an aha moment with is that it's not about you. It's about the audience. Mm-hmm. And that comes straight from Aristotle. When we go into public speaking situations, the reason why people are nervous is because they're thinking, I'm going to do this wrong. I am going to be judged for this or that, or the slide is wrong, or I'll forget, or it's all about how they perceive the audience reacting to them. Me, 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 me. But the speech isn't about you. The speech is about doing something for your audience. And if you can keep that in mind, that it's about helping them, it doesn't mean you have to be perfect. It takes the stress away from being perfect because even Carmine Gallo or Nancy Duarte They're wonderful speakers and they have so much to give, but their speeches aren't technically perfect. They'll have a few junk words or their gestures might be lacking here or there, but that doesn't matter because they are giving you something really valuable in terms of the information. So it's not about being technically perfect. It's not about you. It's about giving something and focusing on your audience. The other thing is that when I started doing this work 11 years ago, I started training and coaching People didn't have iPhones. People didn't have Wi-Fi. People didn't have laptops in the office. And giving a presentation, you really... If people came to your conference and were listening to you or in the meeting for your update, they were your hostages. They had nothing else to do. But now, you not only have to be engaging them from daydreaming, you have to be better than the World Wide Web and every email that they have in their inbox. So I think that the bar has gone up in terms of how much you need to engage your audience and think about them and what they need. And it's reduced even further the amount that people pay attention to. No one has ever been critical, but now the speaker is almost irrelevant because we have so much other stuff going on when we're listening. So the real challenge of speakers is not being judged, but it's about thinking about the audience and trying to get them to stop playing with their dang phones and laptops while you're presenting. All right. Well, tell me, Christina, folks want to learn more, get in touch. Where would you point them? The two places where people can learn more about us are spokenwithauthority.com and also presentingatwork.com is the book. I'm also on Twitter and LinkedIn. If you look for Christine Clapp, you will find me if you're interested in connecting on one of those platforms and staying in conversation about presentation skills and public speaking. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs? My goal to you is to think about a big win that you could have in a year. So I told you the story at the beginning of this interview about how it took me one year to go from being a 0 and 12 debater to going to nationals in my debate. And while I don't expect many of your listeners will be going to nationals, my question and my challenge to each one of them is to say, for you and where you are in your career today, what is nationals for you? What would a really big deal presentation be for you in December 2020 by then? So think big and then start thinking about what you need to start doing in January and February and March and April to get yourself ready for that speaking role. And if there's any way my team and I can support along that journey, by all means, please let us know. We'd love to help. Christine, this has been a treat. Thanks so much for bringing the goods and keep up the great work. Thank you so much. Probably my favorite thing that Christine said here was that six sticks and one, it rhymes. And two, it's a nice little reminder to don't just run through it once or twice, shoot for six, and then that will stick. 
Again, the show notes, the transcript, the links to items we've referenced are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep525. If you haven't already, I hope you'll push subscribe. You'll catch our next guest. It is Daphne Gray Grant. She has got some pro tips on writing better, and she has converted me to, at long last, using mind maps. And if you just can't wait that long and want to listen to some more engaging interviews now, definitely check out the Something You Should Know podcast. They share our conviction that sometimes one little piece of wisdom can change your life forever. Their host, Mike Carruthers, interviews top experts to help you save time and money, advance your career, improve relationships, and just find more joy from life. We've interviewed a few overlapping guests, and then they've got many more folks that you haven't met yet. I met Mike at Podcast Movement. He's just such a great guy with a really impressive, buttery, smooth voice. I'm actually a little bit jealous, if I'm honest. Again, that show is called Something You Should Know. Their cover art has a yellow light bulb with a blue background behind it. You can search Something You Should Know in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the current app you're using now, or find Something You Should Know in the top rankings within the education category. Until next time, peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.